Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hey, 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 hey. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, today, where we are actually broadcasting this out, is actually Bisexuality Day, uh, celebrating Bisexuality Day, and uh, that is, is what we're doing today. Um, this day is actually the end of what is uh, been known as the Bi Awareness Week, hashtag Bi Week. Um, so we're, we're kind of ending it with, with a Bi Bang um, by having this discussion. And we have invited on for this discussion one of the foremost experts in the country, Dr. Rich Saban-Williams. Um, he is the author, among many other things in his pedigree, of a brand-new book called Bi, Bisexual, Pansexual, Fluid, and Non-Binary Youth. Um, we're going to get into a discussion with him about the book, about bisexuality in general. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, we're going to celebrate it, and we're going to um, hopefully bring some understanding to it um, in, in a new and different way. Um, from my perspective, the concept of bisexuality has evolved, um, and um, it's a very good thing, and I'm looking forward to uh, digging into that with him. Um, before that, I'm going to be bringing on my illustrious co-host, Brody Levesque. Brody is the executive editor of the publication, The L.A. Blade, which appears in print and online, uh, servicing most of the L.A. area, but they do global stories as well. Um, and so with that, Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon to our listeners, and thank all of you for subscribing to our podcast, listening to us, and sharing the episodes. We sincerely appreciate it. And also, shout out and thanks to all of our guests. Uh, you guys are all amazing, and uh, we were so glad to have you on, and we always look forward to having you on again at some point. Um, I think I'll start off with a story that uh, actually occurred a um, couple weeks ago, uh, but it's a story that I'm aware of because I know the participants. Uh, a shout-out and a greeting to, in what was a historic first, governor's, uh, the, the chief executive of Colorado, Governor Jared Polis, uh, married his longtime uh, partner and beau, uh, Marlon, in a little uh, intimate uh, ceremony at the... Uh, University of Colorado uh, at Boulder, which is where Marlon was actually matriculating at the time when they met, um, and they got married on the 18th anniversary of their first date, which I thought was uh, really kind of special, very romantic. Um, Jared and Marlon's uh, kids were involved, too. Um, they have a seven-year-old daughter, and she was a flower girl. And uh, their nine-year-old uh, son uh, was the uh, ring bearer, although I have to admit it was kind of funny. Uh, the governor, uh, 
was asked about, you know, the kids' participation, and uh, he said about his daughter, uh, she was all in on being a flower girl. She's been prancing around. She got a great dress. She's terrific. Um, according to Marlon, their son was happy, but kind <laughs> of like a little bit more modern. Uh, his question to his uh, dad and his papa was, why do people get married? So there is kind of a lesson from, from the governor of the state of Colorado uh, in other news. So uh, some things are going on. Uh, this is uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, and the Williams Institute at the University of California uh, School of Law, Los Angeles, uh, did a report today that there are about approximately uh, 2.3 million uh, Latinx uh, LGBT adults who live in the United States. Um, and according to the Williams Institute, more than a third of those are living in locum, low-income uh, households. Uh, they have chronic health conditions. They have chronic uh, economic issues, unemployment, food insecurities. Um, in terms of economic security, we're seeing both similarities and differences between Latinx, LGBT, and non-LGBTQ adults. This was the lead author of the study, uh, Dr. Bianca Wilson. She's a senior scholar of public policy at the Williams Institute. Uh, Dr. Wilson continues, the fact that Latin, uh, Latinx uh, LGBT adults tend to be younger may contribute to the disparities in employment and food insecurity, while U.S. citizenship, which many Latinx uh, LGBTQ adults in California have, may also actually help uh, close the poverty gap. Uh, and if you go to LosAngelesBlade.com, you scroll to the bottom of the article uh, on uh, what has uh, got a big, huge graphic. It says 2.3 million Latinx adults. Uh, you can read the report for yourself. Uh, there's some uh, really good statistics and data uh, contained in that report. And uh, as we are looking to Hispanic Heritage Month, I just want to footnote that the Los Angeles Blade will be doing a cover. Uh, and it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be nice to kind of give a shout-out to all of our uh, Latinx brothers and sisters in the LGBTQI community. Um, I also wanted to, uh, on a more personal note, yesterday uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin, who I know, and Senator Patty Murray, who I also know, uh, reintroduced, again, the Tyler Clemente Higher Educational Anti-Harassment Legislation. Uh, I have met and gotten to know Tyler's mom, uh, Jane, and his brother, uh, James. Wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, Tyler, if you'll remember, Rob, uh, was a young Rutgers University freshman uh, who leaped to his death off the uh, George Washington Bridge, which connects New North Jersey to New York City, on September 22nd, 2010. That was 11 years ago as of yesterday. Um his roommate and a friend of his roommates were later charged in that. Uh, and uh, the young man in question uh, was sentenced to 30 days in prison. And the reason was is because he had surreptitiously uh, broadcast uh, Tyler uh, having intimate relations with another man uh, in their dorm room. 
Uh, Tyler, who was closeted, uh, just essentially freaked out. Um, I'm going to give a shout-out to Jane Clemente and, and James and Tyler's younger brother for all the hard work along with Tyler's dad that they've done. They established a nonprofit, the Tyler Clemente Foundation, uh, and the whole purpose of the foundation uh, is to end online and offline bullying, harassment, and humiliation, which unfortunately today, even in the era of TikTok, Instagram, uh, and Facebook, continues to be uh, a, a huge, huge problem. Uh, the senators are hoping that the legislation, the act, uh, we'll put a federal stamp on that. Uh, the legislation, if it's passed and signed by President Biden, will require colleges and universities that receive federal funding to have a policy in uh, place that prohibits harassment of students based on their actual or perceived race, color, religion, national origin, sex, disability, and, of course, sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, schools will be required to distribute that policy to all of their students and to make sure that they follow up should any incidences of harassment occur and make sure the students have proper counseling and other services. So, uh, you know, it's it's a law that desperately, desperately uh, needs right. to be passed. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, um, I have been very supportive of the Clemente family efforts in this Uh you know, Jane, her husband, and the boys have done a marvelous job uh, in Tyler's name with the foundation. And I think that this is a piece of legislation that we really, really need to get people to pay uh, attention to. So um, call your senator, call your representative, email, do whatever it takes. We need this legislation passed. Uh, you can go to uh, Senate.gov and look up uh, Senator Baldwin of Wisconsin or Murray of Washington and more information on the legislation uh, and what you can do uh, is there. Uh, Californians, please go to the website for Senator Alex Padilla, and Alex's staff will be more than happy to help you out as well. We need this legislation passed desperately. Um, let's see, what else do we got? Um, I think we have time for a a couple more. Um, okay. Uh, we've got um, an interesting gubernatorial race out in Virginia going on right now. The two running, one is a former Democratic governor of the state and a Clinton advisor, uh, Terry McAuliffe, and the gentleman running against him is a vehemently anti-trans, anti-gay, uh, fat cat, wealthy Republican type by the name of Glenn Youngkin who is a former head of the Carlisle Group, which is a um, money bag operation out of Alexandria, Virginia. This race is interesting because whoever controls Richmond is probably going to be able to uh, dictate the narrative going forward into the 2022 and 2024 elections. This is going to be very important because Virginia is a deep purple state now. With the political landscape the way it is, we really could use um, the former governor uh, in the seat as opposed to uh, the Republican. Right now, however, the polls keep uh, kind of going back and forth. However, every poll that I've seen, including the Washington Post poll and yesterday the Mary Washington uh, University poll, Research America poll, it's a dead heat, Rob. I mean, these two candidates oh, are wow. really running neck. Yeah, it's, 
it's neck and neck. So uh, it's going to be what a are, what are the Yeah, what what are the issues that are keeping it so close? Um, obviously, it's not a population worried about trans rights. Otherwise, it wouldn't be close at all. The biggest thing driving this uh, is conservative family values, but the overlay, unsurprisingly, is the coronavirus pandemic and the protocols for masking and vaccinations. This has become a hot-button topic all over the place. And actually, in Virginia, trans rights are very much a part of this campaign. Uh, School districts were required uh, from a lot of this class last year Okay, to make allowances and accommodation for trans kids, including use of gender and their pronouns and et cetera, gender identity. Uh, and the conservative right wing has, well, they've lost their minds. And so they've been invited, they've been invading literally uh, school board meetings all over the state. Uh, the most publicized incident took place in Loudoun County, which is in suburban Washington, D.C.'s metropolitan area. Um, an athletic coach there at a junior high school said that he wouldn't respect pronoun use and he got himself sidelined. Um, and then he was later ordered reinstated. And then that kind of led into a really nasty school board meeting about, you know, the issue over trans rights, the issue over first amendment rights, masking, anti-vax, and then they dragged this critical race theory rubbish into it mm. which i have to footnote right here for all of our listeners critical race theory is not taught in any public school and to the best of my knowledge is only a theory that is academically discussed at a university level but it is not taught in any public school in the united states that is a red herring it is a lie and i'm just going to put that out there but anyway no it, Virginia, it is it, yeah it's, you know, you're right. It's not the the theory is not taught. Um, although it is, in my opinion, the discussion around it would be an interesting thing to be discussed. But there are school districts in the country that have taken the anti-critical race theory to such a level that they are banning um, materials that discuss race at all, and that is ridiculous. I mean, that is, that is absolutely absurd. Um, I'm trying to remember, I believe it was Pennsylvania. There was a school board, all-white school board, in this last week that banned a list of, quote-unquote, um, racially divisive books that included a children's book about Rosa Parks that included mm-hmm. um, um, just, I mean, uh, some hugely some basic books. And it is, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think there is a huge danger here that in this, under the guise of not wanting to teach critical race theory, the historical timeline and historical discussions around race that were already existing are now being whitewashed. And what do you think, Brody? Yeah. No, they are. They're being attacked. I mean, what I'm seeing. Okay, by this campaign, by organizations like Moms for Liberty, they're the loudest, you know, group out there, and and some of these other conservative groups, you know, it's the same crap that the United Daughters of the Confederacy pulled during Jim Crow, 
you know, almost 99% of all of the statutes, okay, that went up honoring the Civil War Confederates and this and that, okay, went up less than 100 years ago. And it was a deliberate ploy to disenfranchise black people in the United States from voting or participating under Jim Crow. This is no different. This is Jim Crow whitewashing by the United Daughters of the Confederacy version 3.0. It's the same rubbish. You know, it, they, they, they've lost their minds. There is an entire grouping of people that cannot accept, okay, the fact and the reality that the United States was founded by people who at the end of the day were racist. Because nobody will take that in context. They get butthurt right. and then they get alarmed, you know? So, yeah, right. I mean, I'm with you on it. I just, every time I see this, it's like, ugh, whatever. Anyway, so that's all the news that's fit to print. Uh, visit me at <laughs> LosAngelesBlade.com, and I'm sure I will offend someone else while you're there. <laughs> <laughs> and if Brody doesn't do it, I will, may do it because uh, he's good enough to print some of my articles every now and again. So <laughs> there you go. Um, so, well, thank you, Brody. Thank you for that very much. Um, now let's get to the subject at hand. Um, uh, this is uh, uh, Bisexuality Day, and it is the culmination of Bi Awareness Week. Um, um, as I said before, we have um, a very learned and expert guest on, uh, Rich Savan Williams. Uh, he has not only written a new book that is just out, um, called Bi, Bisexual, Pansexual, Fluid, and Non-Binary Youth. But he, prior to that, this is not his first time at the rodeo, so to speak. Um, he has, uh, I believe, nine other books. Um, last two most recent was, was Mostly Straight, Sexual Fluidity Amongst Men, and Becoming Who I Am, Young Men on Being Gay. Um, and besides being a uh, a learned academic and um, a, obviously a prolific, uh, prolific author. Um, he is also um, a uh, private in private practice as a clinical psychologist. So he he gets down there um, right at the uh, the personal level. And which that with that, sorry about that. Um, I'd like to welcome Rich to the show. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Oh, very glad to have you. And how has um, Bisexuality Week gone for you? <laughs> well, it's been a busy week. Uh, I, my publishers, New York University Press, did uh, a good job of uh, release date. I, it was not in my plans, but it was in theirs, so uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's sort of like if you wrote a book about Santa Claus, releasing it right at Christmas time. I mean, you know, exactly. <laughs> it, it sort of calls for it. So what, um, I mean, your career is been examining um, sexuality and especially sexuality and youth um, in depth. What, um, what kind of led you to this path? Well, it uh, was sort of a roundabout <laughs> way of getting there. Um, I was relatively late in um, coming out to myself and to other people. Um, I think that's probably because I grew up in southern Missouri, 
which is not exactly a hotbed of gay activism of any sort. Um, and once I sort of went to college and then the graduate school, I began to recognize what was evident eventually. And then when I went to um, took my first position, my only position, actually my only job at Cornell University, um, I began finally to face up to the fact that um, I wasn't, uh, there was something different about me. And then I started reading everything I could, of course. That was my, my tendency. And it actually didn't feel like it fit the, um, the lifespan, the life development of the young people that I knew at Cornell. Um, in particular, it felt to me like many of the, the young people, I was the faculty advisor of the, um, of the gay group, they were really quite a strong, resistant, uh, really fun group of, of people. And uh, But everything I read only emphasized the suicidality, the depression, the anxiety, mm -hmm. the horrible thing of being gay and young. And yet, from my perspective, actually it seemed like a pretty good time to be young and gay. Um, so that then said, well, okay, I need to do my own research then. And that has led me through 30-some years of doing research on sexual minority youth. Yeah, no, it, uh, and it's fascinating, and I highly recommend uh, people picking up the current book, especially, and probably all your previous ones, um, but uh, the current one um, is very thought-provoking. You go into a lot of detail um, around um, bisexuality and kind of the evolved concepts of bisexuality. Um, you interviewed, I believe it was 69 young people for the book, um, how did you how did you find them, and is that the right number? Um, well, what I did originally was when I was reading um, the literature, it struck me that most of what I was reading was um, sort of government or large organization surveys, and and it seemed to me that that there was that the researchers were basically out of touch with the lives of young people who have same-sex attractions. So in part because of my interest in, in clinical work, I began several projects over the last um, decade or so to interview young men and women about their sexual and romantic lives. And in that process, I didn't re restrict my interviews to only gays or lesbians and mm -hmm. i and so through the through the door of people willing to talk about their sexual and romantic histories were individuals who clearly weren't gay lesbian or straight but they were somewhere in the middle and that w was puzzling to me because i grew up in an era in which there was some disbelief that bisexual even existed, especially in men. Maybe women, you know, the question was maybe all women are bisexual. But men were really thought to be either gay or straight, and yet I was interviewing young people who were quite adamant and gave very explicit details that they were attracted to um, both sexes to varying degrees. And um, I knew I had to tell their stories, but first I had to um, put out some other books that uh, 
were sort of uh, in my wheelhouse. And then I started reading everything I could about bisexuality. It took me a couple of years. Um, and then I finally began to take form. I did a lot, a lot of revisions because as I, even as I was writing, there were, there were other stuff being published, and so I wanted to include that. So the book has a lot of science in it. I mean, I think I put in like 300 or so end notes, so for people who are interested in the research aspect, <laughs> they could look it up themselves and see if I am right or accurate. But that wasn't, I mean, that, it, that was one of my motives. I mean, I did want to speak with my fellow researchers, but I was far more interested in the young people themselves, of giving them a voice about their lives and how they've um, understood themselves throughout their development. And that, was, that led me to include sort of snippets or short, brief stories about their lives and, and to cite them, to quote them in that regard. The, so that was the second audience that I wanted to reach were sort of young people, though maybe I don't know how many read books, but at least um, <laughs> I wanted to get it out there. you got to get it on but, TikTok. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's not going to happen on this time. On this time. <laughs> <laughs> really. um, but the other, the other group that I was very interested in, and maybe ultimately we'll get, I hope, maybe the most out of it, are parents, teachers, healthcare providers, clinicians, doctors, the professional people who um, work with y- young people who have a lot of questions. They want to, I think, basically do good work, but they don't sort of understand what's going on or they have a wrong per- perception of same-sex attracted youth. So th- so that's why I wanted to do things on recommendations um, to give some advice as much as I, you know, felt comfortable doing that. So I think there are sort of there's sort of hints, if you will, about how to um, to deal with the the individuals, the young people who are in the middle, on the spectrum, from right. the two extremes. Yeah, there's a, a part in your book that you call the generational rebellion, and it it kind of got me curious because. I, I get where you're coming from on it um, because <laughs> the the concepts that are coming out of the younger generation, and I have, full disclosure, I have an 18-year-old and a 9-year-old son. So I'm ah. like right right there, you know, yes. hearing, hearing, hearing from the generation firsthand. Um, yes. But the, um, uh, having been, you know, around, you know, the the, for lack of a better term, the gay community, um, for several decades and growing up in that, um, I see it as kind of an evolvement as opposed to an, a revolution. Why, why mm-hmm. do you see it as a, a kind of a, a fight as opposed to sort of the natural next step? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wouldn't disagree with you that it's been an evolution. It just seems to me, you know, looking back and where we are today as opposed to in the um, 70s, 80s, and 90s, that that the pace of evolution has dramatically increased. And mm-hmm. that was really brought home to me by interviewing the young people. And it's, it's kind of strange in a way that we write about gay youth, but we don't actually talk to them 
to find out what they think about what we're writing or researching. But it struck me that, um, you know, when I interviewed the young people, I did not know what their sexuality was because I didn't look at their initial questionnaire. I just asked the same questions of the young people regardless of their sexuality. So that, for example, I would ask straight men and women, when did you first realize you have same sex, had same-sex attractions? And, of course, you get different kinds of responses from them than if you ask um, same-sex attracted youth. But in that process, I was struck by how many of the young people only use the word bisexual sort of reluctantly. It, was, mm-hmm. it, almost appeared, it almost appeared more for my benefit because they thought maybe I would understand if they used the word bisexual. <laughs> and, right. and, of course, I feigned ignorance, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And then they would go into great detail, um, explicit detail, um, about what that meant to them. And in that process, I discovered that they use different terms, different identities. Sometimes I would have to ask, what do you mean by that word or by that term? And they also talked about the fluctuations in their sexuality. And this group that is included in this book all said to some extent that they are attracted either sexually, and here is a very important point, or, and or romantically to multiple sexes, and they would use multiple sexes just so that, you know, they didn't want to use the the term both sexes because they thought that was limiting um, to only two. So they articulated it, and when they felt like I was not on a soapbox to say anything, then I think they told the truth about their reality. And they really hated boxes that they felt um, adults imposed on them. Right. Um, they didn't like the categories. They didn't feel like it fit them. Or, you know, like for example, they thought they didn't like the word sometimes bisexual because it had the word bisexual. When and and that was not the main basis by which they would identify as bisexual. It wasn't necessarily because of sex. Um, but it was a more complete personality kind of thing and who they fell in love with. And to some extent, the earliest sign of sexual orientation for many of these young men and women was actually infatuations and crushes. Long before they knew what sex was, they knew sort of what a crush was. And that um, I think that's something we've neglected a great deal um, is the, well, the role I, of romance. And- yeah. Oh, I agree with you. In fact, I, I think that's uh, in in kind of the oppression of anything other than heterosexuality. Um, we've seen that because you know it's like you you know parents have little kids. They're you know little two year olds, and um, the little two year old girl is dressed as a princess, and she they talk about oh your prince will come, and you know and and this whole romance thing. They're you know and in their minds they're not talking sexuality to this very young child. But then you talk about homosexuality or, you know, same-sex attraction, and all of a sudden it's, oh, we can't talk sex. And it's like, well, you just were in, in, in a romantic sense. So, you know, how come there isn't a romance, romance sense of um, sexuality? Mm-hmm. Plus, what, uh, if once the area where that discussion was sort of 
became um, almost comedic in a little bit. Um, the view had on a group of young people um, at one point talking about sexual um, identities, and they went. The the young people went in. It went were going into that discussion exactly what you were saying is that they were talking about their romantic identity and their sexual identity and you know their pan this and this and everything else and the women on the view were like uh what huh i mean they were <laughs> like pretty much all dumbfounded it was like what the hell are you talking about um because it, it had gone beyond um the one one thing that that i've observed over being part of the um, sexual civil rights movement and everything else is we have kind of blown the barriers as we've made progress, um, even though the, the, the mantle of that progress has been made under a binary kind of concept. Mm -hmm. But once we blew like same-sex marriage so that anybody of any gender could marry anybody else of any gender, then the next, to me, the next obvious ability and awareness was that it doesn't have to be one gender or the other. I mean, mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've opened that up. And a lot of these kids were babies, were little when the major fight for that happened. Mm-hmm. So their, their world had already broken those restrictions and they got to address their humanity in a way that older people weren't really given permission to do. Um, exactly. I mean, what, right. yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, when I, um, one of my final kind of questions at the end was um, what age uh, do you, I mean, do you expect them to, to marry? Um, and if so, at what age? And, um, you know, the magical age was 30. I, I don't know why, but so many of them picked <laughs> 30. And, um, and then, you know, with, um, and, I, and I asked everyone the same, you know, question, would it be a man or a woman? And, you know, it was easy for the, for the gays and the straights, of course. But for the bisexuals, they go, well, that's a good question. I don't really know. Um, it could be either. It all depends on the person. And I thought, depends on the person? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know. Um, so they were open to the possibilities. Now, I think one of the more interesting characters in the book um, was an individual who, when I um, asked him about his sexual and romantic attractions, so he would say, and he did say, well, I'm mostly gay in my sexual attractions, um, but I'm mostly straight in my romantic attractions. And that got into a very lengthy discussion about the difference between his sexuality and his romantic self, and they were not congruent. And it sort of led me to begin to investigate that issue a little bit more, and I found other examples of where usually who you want to have sex with is the same gender as the person you want to fall in love with but not always. So it's not always identical. And I think this was particularly true with the, with the men and women in the middle. That is, that they could have right. a different blend of those two, which raises fascinating issues and questions and growth and development. Um, and I think in some ways 
a lot of these folks were pretty resilient and pretty strong because they had to come yeah, no, it's uh, issues like yeah, this. I, I think I think that I think that's fascinating and it's it's hard for me because I remember reading that in your book and it's it's hard for me not to project my own <laughs> experience in life onto that because mm-hmm. when I grew up and there like I said in back in the day um, there wasn't a lot of options anywhere. I mean, what there wasn't, you know, you didn't have media that was supportive. You didn't have anything that was supportive of anything other than a heterosexual lifestyle. But mm-hmm. I fell in love with the concept of straight romantic love. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. that was, I was a romantic and, you know, I loved the, the, the straight love stories and, you know, I had a girlfriend, and my sort of existential crisis came about when I had this moment where I won the girl, this girl that I'd been pining for for a year, and I had her in my arms, and it was all romantic, and, you know, the the, the set should have opened up to the chorus and all of that, <laughs> and inside of me was this thing kind of going, eh, eh. <laughs> this doesn't right. feel right, because... Right. I did not want to take it to the next step. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess my, my long-winded question here is that all was actually because any concept of romance with a, a, a man for me had mm-hmm. been completely repressed. I mean, right. it was, it, I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. It wasn't glorified. You know, it was out mm-hmm. of my experience. It wasn't until years later when I was in relationships and all of a sudden, had, you know, where I opened myself up to being able to feel that way. Um, right. And so I'm wondering where, even in today's society, and that with this gentleman that you interviewed in the book, um, mm-hmm. is that conditioning part of the romance thing? Or do you think it is another innate quality? Well, certainly, you know, the your you know your story is one that I think that probably uh, several men out there would um, you know uh, identify with because that ha- that was sort of what was out there as a possibility. But I think what um, what these young people and are are experiencing is the possibilities. That is that they don't close down things. And they begin to address these issues much earlier than I think right. um, your generation or my generation did. And so the things that I struggled with maybe as a graduate student, they're, they're dealing with when they're in high school. And, and I think they have a lot of support from, from their peers, from their friends. Um, they don't get enough from parents frequently. But on the other hand, there are some parents who are pretty – decent about it, um, that is grappling with this distinction between the romantic aspects and the sexual aspect. And, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the advice that I got from my counselor at the University of Missouri was, well, have you had sex with a woman yet? Um, and I go, well, no. He said, well, <laughs> come back when you have, and then we'll talk about it. Um, so that was sort of more the norm, but but these kids right. are not that way. See, that's the amazing, and 
thing, and there were times when I'm interviewing them. Of course, I've got to be, I've got to disappear, you know, in the room, and I'm tape recording some of these um, interviews when I was allowed to do that. Um, and I just faded, and but there was a part of me going, my gosh, if I had, could I have handled that when I was that age? You know, I wish I had that option. And I thought that I could never have handled it, but they are handling it because right. their yeah. exposure is so incredible. You know, one thing I, w- I want to say, and this actually goes to the, uh, my my previous book on mostly straight men, and what struck me about a lot of the mostly straight men was that they didn't so much, I mean, they would be willing to try sex with a guy if the right guy came along. Frequently he hadn't yet, but, you know, they could entertain the possibility. But what was more interesting to me in some ways was the fact that some of them described, there was nothing other than that I could describe it as a male crush. I mean, a pretty intense crush. Um, one of my one of my favorite guys, he, you know, whenever he went back, he would go visit his male friends even before, you know, he would go stop in at his parents' house. It was so intense. They had like daily contact, and you know, his perspective was, if only I could meet a, a woman who I loved as much as these men do, that as I love these men. Now, right. was that just a buddy? Yes, but. <laughs> It sound if I had said this was a you know a, a girl or a young woman, you know you would say oh yeah that's a crush oh yeah that's an infatuation. So I believe yeah, them yeah, when it, they when they called it a crush. I said okay that's right. you called a crush I will too. Well, it's an interesting thing about labels as well, and you do get into this in the book, and I think you it's kind of where the book leads up to is is the questioning of labeling this at all. Uh, one of yes. my sons, who who would identify essentially as straight, has um, mm-hmm. been in a long-term relationship with a, a person who identifies as gender non-binary, uh-huh. and yes. um, that person identified as female when they first got together. So I'm looking mm-hmm. at my son going, okay, so if you're going to slap a label on him, what <laughs> because now his partner is gender non-binary so right exactly pansexual even though the same person he has been with has not changed it's the same person and right. you know it's i've stopped asking my sons anything about their identities because i want them i don't necessarily need to have a label for either That's one of right. them uh, yes. But that leads me to, to the kind of the question that you, you alluded to earlier on. Is, is bisexual an outdated term? Oh, boy. That, 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 that would get me into uh, considerable uh, <laughs> <laughs> crisis here. <laughs> it's bisexual awareness <laughs> week and day. Um, I, th- no, I think there's still great merit in it, in keeping the word. And I debated that and during my early and stages of sort of writing the book, and that is what do I do with the word bisexual? Because it, it carries for many bisexual people some negative connotations, and yet it does communicate a lot. So I think that you know, as a global term, a large umbrella under which are many different identities, it's um, 
it's okay. And yet some of the young people said, no, we should use the word pansexual as the overarching word and then bisexual being a part of that. So I just want to say there's, there's no real answer from the perspective of young people. Um, there, you know, there was not, there's very seldom strongly negative feelings about the word. They just felt like it didn't quite get at their real self, their authentic self. Um, they right. used it in order to communicate, but if you really wanted to know them as a person, then you wouldn't say, so you're bisexual, right? <laughs> they would say, well, let me tell you a little bit more <laughs> if you'll stay and listen to me. So, right. Yeah, no, and I think it, yeah. it ties into the consciousness of gender identity um, mm-hmm. because that's what I hear from a lot of the young people I'm around is yes. that's much more what they're focused on is, you know, they're identifying as, as non-binary mm-hmm. and then bisexual, unfortunately, has bi as part of the word, which sounds mm-hmm. like the binary, um, yes, and, and that right. throws it off. Yeah. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. You were saying you, you were making a point. Well, um, I, I, I think I think the issue of of, of um, non-binary is really one of the most up and coming <laughs> terms, if you will. It doesn't. It's not so much. Well, some people use it as an identity, but some people just use it as a description, you know, of of how they feel about their gender, um, and they don't like the sort of the binary nature of it. They don't like the the notion of masculinity and femininity only for its own sake. Um, and of course, many of those people then would fall under a large umbrella called pansexual. Um, so it's you know it gets too confusing and sometimes you know when parents want that when I talk with them you know like what's wrong with my child and um, I try to explain some of these things but then eventually I just say you know you should talk with your child and find out how the child sees it um, their gender and sexual and romantic selves because that ultimately may not be set in concrete. And what they need is a non-judgmental parent. They need a supportive parent, a parent who mm-hmm. loves them for who they are, whatever that may be. And I think most of them have it. I, I don't, I, you know, I think sometimes we give parents a bad name because we can always come up with a, an example of a bad parent who apparently didn't love their child very much because they, if that child didn't conform, it was bye-bye. Kind of thing. Right. That's that's relatively rare. Um, I remember reading. You know, I was talking about the early research. One of the, the early things I read was in a gay magazine that I will not name. No, I could, but maybe I shouldn't. Um, <laughs> and in this in this article, it said fifty percent of all gay youth are rejected by their parents and have to leave home. And I'm thinking. That is unbelievable, and indeed it was so unbelievable that it wasn't true. And when I began doing my own research, I found out the percentage is not 50%, but 2%. And Hmm. yet this was the image that our young people had and our perspective about the relationship between parents and children. Most parents do love their child. They make mistakes big time, but 
very few reject it. And I, I think in since I'm on the topic of family, um, I right. think that one of the real unique issues that are faced by that issues that are faced by bisexuals are um, the parents' reactions and their behaviors when they find out um, the child is bisexual. And then the classic line, which some of them actually heard, was, well, if you're bisexual, then you can choose to be straight. Right. Um, and the child said, you're not listening very well. <laughs> you know, I'm bisexual. And, um, you know, I if I wanted to be straight, I would identify as straight, but I don't. So parents need some education um, as right. well. Yeah, I think that I think that is an issue around even the historical concept of bisexuality is that um and it's not necessarily even from from people who had same sex attraction and knowing who we were, but it was the perception of for lack of a better term the straight society at large where mm-hmm. when fighting for rights the the first question was are you born that way? And the reason that question was germane legally and, you know, societally was, okay, you know, are we talking about a behavior you are choosing to enact or are we we talking about something that's innate that you, quote, unquote, can't help? And that Mm -hmm. the two things then differentiate themselves on what you have a right to do in your life, which really should not be the case. And bisexuality implied, even though it wasn't true, um, when you got down to the the nuance of it, was that, you know, where a gay person, you know, in in societal terms, had no choice. Mm -hmm. You know, me as a gay man, I'm not going to pick any woman to marry. There's nobody on the list. Whereas if I was a bisexual (laughs) man, that that in theory, um, you know, I could... You know, I have half a list of people mm-hmm. that I could, you know, marry and, and you know, take advantage of of whatever. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, it, it gets into that that kind of realm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. So, it, what, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you, you bring up the whole, the whole issue of you're born that way or made that way. Um, I actually ask that question. Um, of all of my interviewees about how do you think you became the sexuality that you are? Um, Every single straight person said they were born that way. Um, When I asked them how bisexual, because I then continued, like how do you think bisexuals got to be bisexual? They also said, well, they were born that way. Um, Then when I got to the bisexuals and I asked the same question, (laughs) their answer was, I don't care. <laughs> you know, it was, I just thought that was like the perfect answer in a way. Like, I don't care. This is who I am. I don't, you know, how I got this way is of no concern. And they would not give up their bisexuality, even if they could, because then they would be giving right. up themselves, their authentic self. And I don't know. I just felt that was like an incredibly, um, um, I don't know, mature perspective. Because the, the gays and lesbians also said I was born this way. Um, it was really the rare person who said, "Oh, it's because of childhood abuse or right. bad teachers or coaches or teachers or whatever." But it was Which bisexuals you, who basically said, "I don't care." 
Yeah, which which actually you have somebody in the book that kind of identifies that way that you know he blames it on he blames it on his weight and everything else, but then later when he mm-hmm. you know um, changed that yeah. part oh, of himself, <laughs> you know his 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 sexuality didn't change. It, you know, right. so it's sort of like he, where he may have hung his reasoning on that. It, mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that sort of indicate that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, right. We're um, fascinating topic, and you know we're, we're starting to run short on time. Um, mm-hmm. I did want you to ask you about something you talk about uh, somewhat in the book, um, which is toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and <laughs> misogyny in society and how that affects this. And the reason I'm asking is that, and uh, you you also have talked about this and alluded to it, but I'm just aware in different situations, um, and this is a horrible example, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, like I watch a lot of the dirty ple- or uh, secret uh, guilty pleasure of mine is some of the real housewife shows mm-hmm. on TV. And a lot of these are these women go off on boondoggles alone, and they get into some pretty intimate situations with each other where they're, you know, sometimes they, they're kissing and they're, they're, you know, kind of mm-hmm. um, naked together and doing, you know, kind of all this stuff. And I'm sitting there watching it going, you know, if this is a real husband show or their husbands <laughs> were on this trip, you would not mm-hmm. be seeing this like this. There would be, mm-hmm. there would be none of this. And, right. um, and, and you did allude to that in the book. What, what are your thoughts on those elements and the effect of people allowing themselves to be themselves. Right. Well, I, I sort of rely on, I think, a, um, an excellent researcher, Niobe Way, who, who looked at adolescent boys and um, followed them over time. And what she found was sort of the, the crisis of connection, which is that these boys, before they become adolescents, really are connecting with other boys. They're touching each other. You know, there's a lot of, it's almost like this toxic masculinity is not so much present early on. Yeah, it's there, but it's not so toxic, if you will. But then as they grow into adolescence, they, they are taught, they learn to be far more masculine acting. And a lot of them are not happy with that. I mean, that they, they do long for their best friend, that they can know that they can't hold hands with, or they can't be naked with, or whatever else, um, and they miss that connection. And so, um, I would hope that we are moving in our society. Not only, I mean, I don't think we have to free women in this regard so much as we do men. Men are the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And if I could just say to men, follow the women. They've got it right. <laughs> They've got it much better in the sense of keeping those connections way past puberty. And look how much they prosper from that. They have these friendships, connections. You know, it's sort of like when a straight couple marries, you know, this is sort of classic. Um, she provides the friends for the home, not him. And I think that's a real loss. Yeah, no, that's, that's it's fascinating, um, you know, and – um, the, your book is absolutely fascinating, and like I said, you know, a lot of good conversation coming out of it. Um, um, I highly recommend people read it, um, talk about it, and, and um, explore it. Um, we're down to our last four minutes. What haven't we talked about that uh, 
we should be. Okay, so probably the one topic in this book, which is going to get me in the most trouble. So I'll just say it since we're near the end. <laughs> so the national surveys say 3 to 5% of all Americans identify as bisexual. So that's hardly enough to worry about. But according to my count, if we count the people that are ignored by researchers, actually I would say, and I'll go out on a limb on this, but I think I could support it, that one quarter of the population is bisexual. And by bisexual, I don't mean identity. I mean they have same-sex attractions, either romantic or sexual, to multiple sexes. And um, I think I said that wrong. But anyway, um, I think what that's important, that this is not a tiny little small group that we can ignore. No, we're talking about one out of every four people have right. mixed attractions. Why are we ignoring them? I just, I'm just baffled beyond belief. Oh, I, I, I don't know. Point, I'm, and, um, I, excellent question. I, I don't. I mean, looking at that and what he just said, Rob. If you think about that for just a second, you know, it goes back to what a professor told me many years ago. You are who you are because of where you were when, and you look at what happens, especially during adolescence with a lot of these people and with a lot of these other people, um, and the influences culturally and environmentally, that's mm -hmm. not unusual that you would see that. Yeah. Yep. Well, yep. I want to thank you both for, for being on today. Um, uh, Dr. Simon Williams, um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Oh. Um, the book is Bi, Bisexual, Pansexual, Fluid, and Non-Binary Youth. Can I assume that people can find that on Amazon.com? Among other they places. could, but I would recommend their independent bookstores <laughs> and um, New okay. York University <laughs> Press um, are, good, uh, are good as well. Find that book, read it, share it with your friends. Um, it is a fascinating read for anybody um, because it, it really talks to the core of all sexuality. And um, if you're a parent, um, vital reading so you can communicate with your kids. Because um, it, it, it is um, really, really, really germane. Um, I want to thank you for listening. We will be back again next week with another exciting, fascinating topic. I have no idea what it is, but I can guarantee you that it will be well worth your while. Um, I want to thank Brody for his work on the LA Blade and um, his help uh, producing the show and co hosting. And I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning in. We find you incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, so for, for all of us here, we wish you a very good week, and we will talk to you again very, very soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.